Good morning. So, this morning, uh, my wife, Molly, gets up from bed and uh, goes to brush her teeth, um, but bumps into the door frame on her way out, out uh, to the bathroom. She then is in the bathroom, is fumbling for the edge of the mirror, and finally finds it and is, is able to, to get it open and knocks around in the medicine cabinet for a bit and finds her, what she thinks is her toothbrush. It's like an orangish blur, and she sort of pulls it out and gets the toothpaste and puts just way too much toothpaste on it. Finally is able to brush her teeth and makes her way down most of the stairs and then trips down the rest, you know, finds her way to the kitchen, goes to grab some cereal for breakfast, and mostly sees, like, rectangular blurs, picks one at random, hopes that it's the right one, pours herself a bowl of what ends up being Opran. Now, as most of you probably have guessed at this point, this is not real. This is a fake story. Um, Molly was nice enough to let me use her as a, as a pretend example. I did clear it with her before, beforehand. Um, but most of you probably realize that partway through the story. Uh, for no other reason than we don't have plain oat bran in our house. We don't eat cereal for breakfast, really. That's our dessert. Um, but most of all, because Molly wouldn't do these things. Not, not all of them in a row, at least. You know, Molly isn't especially uncoordinated or anything, um, especially not to make all of this a reality. Um, but she does need glasses. You know, we, we could see some of these things happen if one day she either forgot her glasses or maybe just decided, I don't need them today. You see, naturally, her eyesight isn't that great and if she were to go without glasses, she wouldn't be able to really make out the details of anything more than a couple feet from her face. Anything further away might as well be cotton candy. So you can see that, that her glasses are really important, and that has to kind of make us wonder if, if this is what life would be like without glasses, how could we ever forget them? So... Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. Go ahead and open in your Bibles. Uh, you can read along with me. Make sure I get this right. Um, again, it's going to be 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Uh, here we have Peter writing a letter to the church at large. Um, and we're likely in his final days. If you look a little bit past the, the passage that we're going to be reading today, you can see evidence for that. Um, our best guess is actually that Peter wrote this letter from a Roman prison while probably awaiting execution. Uh, he didn't have much time left. And this is the opening uh, of the letter, of the last letter that we have from him. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, 
and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we have Peter, in some of his final words to the church, is encouraging them to live as most of us already know how to live. But if we already know it, why write a letter? Why spend some of your precious last words telling people what they already know. Peter's words haven't survived this long as a testament to redundancy, as a, as a tribute to telling people what they already know. Peter obviously sees something that we might not see. He sees that people are not living these virtues. I know, I know, this is shocking. How can you possibly look at the world and not think that everyone out there is living as, as having love as a core tenet of their character? But Peter has seen that, uh, that God has given us promises and gifts, allowing us to partake in his divine nature, and yet somehow we don't accept them. Peter knows how bad our eyesight is, and he's trying to remind us where our glasses are. You see, here we are during Peter's writing, hundreds of years after the founding of Judaism. Those initial covenants were provided to the Israelites. And in those covenants, God has promised them that they would be his people and that they would walk with him. That he would protect them and by keeping his commandments, they would receive his favor. They were always considered to be set apart by God and they were his representatives to everyone here on earth. God granted those promises to the Israelites not because they were such a wonderful and moral people group. God granted them those promises because of, as it says in verse 3, his own glory and excellence. As bizarre as it might seem to us, God chose the Israelites because God wanted to, and he saw that it was for the best. This is really hard for us to understand and get in our heads sometimes, but it's one of the problems that we end up facing by not being omniscient and timeless beings. We really ought to get used to it. But in the New Testament, with the coming and sacrifice of Jesus, we too were guaranteed those promises. We received those promises saying that we are now a part of God's chosen people. Although, like the Israelites, this is not for anything that we've done. This isn't anything that we've deserved. God hasn't selected the best people here on earth to be in his kingdom, no offense, but he has selected them. Through the sacrifice Christ gave and our acceptance of him as a savior, we are joined into God's family. God has sent his son as an invitation to us so that we could fully worship him and be closer to him. Verse 3 even tells us that God has given us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness. All of those things that we need to live a godly life, God has already given them to us. It's like taking an open book test. We've already been given the answers. We have them right here in front of us. He's given us an opportunity, and often we don't really see what he offers. You see, even with all the opportunity God has sent us, we rarely see it for what it really is. We still so often live in our old ways, else we struggle against the sin that we're so used to, the sin that appeals to us so much. We see an opportunity to sin, to maybe tell a little white lie and make some money. We can neglect our responsibility for a momentary pleasure of relaxation, or we wrestle with the decision. Do I really need to do the right thing here? Is that really what God meant when he said that? In these moments, we might even wish that we weren't Christian. We might wish that for a brief moment, we weren't beholden to such a moral God, that we could do what feels good now and then rejoin God later. Some might even do just that. I've heard this line of logic before. God sent Jesus to cover our sins, right? The Bible even says that we are going to sin. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the Bible says it, why even resist? Why not just dive into sin and accept Jesus' gracious forgiveness? Well, thankfully, Paul even saw that line of logic almost 2,000 years ago and says in Romans 6, 1 through 2, What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? We value our freedom so highly. The, the freedom as people to choose to do whatever makes us feel good, whatever fleeting pleasure we find moment to moment. We focus so intently on these pleasures that we might even lose sight of what God has given to us. This insistence on sinning really highlights our priorities in life. Our selfishness is so inherent that we first often ask ourselves what we want. We hear a fellow believer might need help, but first we ask if we feel up to it. If we're really good people, then we might even consider if they need it. If our church family is really in need, then maybe we will help. How often is it, though, that we ask ourselves what God wants us to do in that situation? What is his will for us? How often do we consider what the best course of action is to take so that we can reflect his divine nature? Do we consider what God has done for us and the plans that he has provided? Even if our actions are in line with what God has asked of us, what are our motives? Are our hearts reflecting the character of God that God has made available to us? What then should we do? How can we live as God wants us to live? Thankfully, Peter has seen our need and with God's intervention, knew to write this letter. What initially may have seemed so obvious, we see is something we forget at every available turn. So he gives us a list of character traits to foster in our lives 
in verses 5 through 7. Peter writes about these attributes for us to improve on. Parts of the moral perfection and divine nature God allows us to partake in. Now, even though these are set up in a way that it might sound ordered to us, or like each one is dependent on the last one, I don't think that's what Peter is getting at. I don't think that we have to have knowledge in order to have self-control, even though it could be useful. Really, this is a, just a good way of, of showing these traits and emphasizing each one. You don't mention something twice in a row consecutively over eight different attributes uh, without wanting each one to be important. Starting this list, we have faith or faithfulness in and to the Lord. We're called to be his first and his only. For all of our actions and steps need to be taken for his glory. From our waking to our sleep, our first priority needs to be to God. God has exemplified his faithfulness throughout the Bible. Starting with Adam and Eve as they turn their backs on God, throughout the history of the Israelites, as time and time again they went against God's commands, God gave promises to them so that they could partake in his divine nature. And even when they didn't walk with him, he continued his walk with them. Virtue or goodness, as uh, some translations might have it, we think of as moral excellence, a commitment to doing what seems, what we see as right and honest and just. Keeping virtuous is a constant watch to make sure that we don't slip into situations which may tempt us to sin. It is an abstinence from sin that also helps prevent temptation. It ensures that we are not only doing the right things, but we are doing them for the right reasons. Knowledge, next, is more than learning or a mental awareness of information, but it's practical wisdom. It's proactively preparing yourself and thinking ahead, looking for situations you might encounter in your daily walk with God and making sure that you won't be caught off guard and made to stumble unaware. It's more... It's even more than just reading your Bible. It's taking what you read in your Bible and making a conscious study of it, taking it for consideration and meditation, knowing it in your heart as well as your head. Self-control is much what you'd expect. It's the ability to tell yourself no, the ability to ignore your own desires and instead pursue temperance, avoiding those common and base worldly desires, such as eating too much, drinking to excess, sexual immorality of all sorts. Steadfastness is probably best revealed in the book of Job. Seeing his endurance, not so much through physical contest, but through spiritual turmoil. When Job's lands, wealth, and family were all taken and destroyed. He shows us being steadfast is so much more than going through the trouble while complaining and griping about your misfortune, but shows us that real steadfastness, the type that God is looking for and Peter talks about here, gets through trouble all the while pursuing God. He didn't let his friends, 
He didn't let his friends or wife convince him to give up or that he had done something he hadn't. He didn't lie to himself and take the easy way out. He held firm, worshiping God and holding fast to the character that God looks for in his people. Godliness here is referencing how we are to behave not only towards God, but also our relatives and authorities, the promises that we make, and his law. It's a respect that we have for these things, these things that God has created. We are to be respectful of and give honor to. We need to know and remember that we are not the only ones who God has created and is working through. Everything in this world and even the world itself is God's and we are just stewards of it. We need to treat everyone in that context. We need to remember that they are under his wing as much as we are. Brotherly affection can be thought of as the love that you have for your family. For us, though, this context goes beyond our physical blood relatives and impacts our entire Christian family, those in our church and those outside of it. They're, we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as much as we love our own siblings, even though for some of us, I should maybe say more than our own siblings. <laughs> At the time that this letter was written, a lot of the pagans even mocked early Christians for the familial love they showed for one another. They thought it embarrassing that Christians would show so much favor outside of their own household. Christ has tied us together as a new family, born again in him. We've all been made new by his grace. And with that in mind, shouldn't it be easy for us to think of, our, of ourselves and each other as a family? Even though our lives and backgrounds sometimes make it difficult for us to feel like we can connect with each other and find ways that we can uh, find similarity and find common ground to talk about. At some level, we've all come from the same place. We've all fallen short and been made new. Been made whole by what God, by God and experience his wonderful kindness to adopt us into his family. Shouldn't we think of other Christians then as brothers and sisters we've never known and be excited to get to know them? Be excited that we might discover them? We should be excited to hear about their lives and excited to tell them about our own, eager that we can grow closer and uh, a better connected family. Finally, the last uh, attribute in this list is love. This is the often talked about agape love that God has for us. And here we are instructed that we uphold this love as a virtue. While brotherly affection has a distinction towards family and Christians, love here doesn't have any such distinction around it. I can only take this to mean that we are to be lo loving toward God and people, all of them, as God loves us. Now, none of these traits in this list so far have been feelings, and love is no exception. These are virtues we need to consciously uphold and pursue. This love, then, is how we must act 
towards each other, how we must act towards the world. We need to treat them with the same love that God treats us. Now, I'm sure every wedding you've ever been to tells you what love does and doesn't do, so I'll leave that part out. But I do want to talk about how uh, in 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul mentions, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Here we see two virtues on this list, knowledge and love, set against each other. Love builds up while knowledge puffs up. That's, that's not a good thing. Um, love is shown time and time again throughout the Bible to be the chief virtue. and needs to be held to even while pursuing other virtues. Words of knowledge spoken without love are like a clanging cymbal. It's wasted on the ears that hear them. Self-control without love ends up being self-centered. You flow out from God. Now, as I, as I talked through those, it, it might have felt long and heavy. That's a lot that we are called to. Not only that, but we are called to these virtues by God. This list wasn't written even by some Nobel Peace Prize winner that we could compare ourselves to and think, wow, maybe I can be as good as them one day. This list was written by Peter, but was given to us by God the supreme being who does all of these perfectly. Even more so than that, he is these traits. He's the prototype that all of these are modeled after. Virtue is only virtue because God is virtuous. Without God as the baseline, none of these means anything. God is these traits, and he then created us in his image. Yet, we don't do everything we can to mirror them. In fact, usually when we really need to display self-control or steadfastness or even brotherly affection, we balk and complain and we run from the task. You see, we're not so nearsighted that we forget we can sin and be forgiven, even though we are. We're not even so nearsighted that we forgot that God has already paid our debt even though he has. You see, we're so nearsighted that we forget that we've been cleansed of our initial sin, that we no longer need to sin or are bound to sin, that we are able to grow and abound in these divine qualities, in this character that God has designed for us, and that we can partake in God's divine nature, in his moral perfection, you see, we focus so much of our lives on avoiding sin and worrying on at, at what we might miss out on as if by, by putting on these glasses and seeing everything clearly, we might not notice something that's right in front of us, that the sin might be the most important thing in the world around us. We've all heard the hypothetical question, I'm sure, what if a man sins for his whole life? He lies to his wife, he cheats on his taxes, he steals from those in need, and lives in the world for all his time until he lays on his deathbed. And then he realizes, ah, I should accept Jesus as Savior. He does that and then dies. 
does he get to go to heaven? People ask that question jealously. We all secretly harbor this desire to be morally repugnant, to be awful people until the moment that we die and then accept Jesus and die. That's how we cheat the system, right? That's, that's what we all think a little bit. We think that if, if we can do that, we get to live how we want to in this life and in the next. That is our nearsightedness. That perspective that looks so hopeful at these few years that we have on earth, that, pers- that perspective that only has immediacy in focus, only this world. We're so focused on what's six inches away from our face that we proclaim we don't need these glasses, throw them down to the ground. We ignore the greater purpose that God has tried to show us. We ignore, we, we've all had these moments where we've felt God move in our lives, where we've seen him answer our prayers. Even if it was just during the moment of our conversion, we've all had times where God has done something for us and we knew it. And in those moments, we're fearless. We know our Heavenly Father sees and hears us and are so ready to do whatever it takes to serve him. And yet so often our eyes cling to the life we see every day. Of course they do. We're basically babies. We don't have object permanence when it comes to the spiritual realm. We experience God, see him answer our prayers, hear him speak to us during meditation, feel him move in us while we are in prayer and devotions, and then the next day, focus our whole minds on what's for dinner. Or maybe sports or something cooler. I don't know about you. I mostly think about what I'm having for dinner that night. We're so quick, though, to forget those things that God has done for us. But we have to remember them. We have to put on those glasses and keep all of these things in focus, these most important things, those things that we see when we're at our best and we're close with our Father. Thankfully, God knows how forgetful we are. God knows that we are weak and imperfect, that we live flawed lives, bound by time and space, constantly surrounded by the opportunity to sin. But he's given us the answers. The Father, in his boundless mercy and wisdom, has sent his Son, Jesus, to die for us. Jesus came and was sacrificed after taking on the sins of the world, the sins that you and I commit and anyone else who has faith in Jesus and repents of their sinful nature. Through this sacrifice, we are given hope. We were given the grace from God that the price of our sins might already have been paid by Jesus that day on the cross. It is in this gift that we can be covered and be seen as clean before God as he provides for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. This beautiful gift was given to us as people God has called. In Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God has chosen us to follow him, to be a part of his family, 
He sees our iniquity, and yet in his divine purpose, he has thought it best to raise us up from the dirt and allow us to join him in his grand design. It is with that calling, he gives us a purpose, and that purpose takes pursuit to achieve. In verse 10 in our passage, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter is no fool or idealist. He's probably writing this from a Roman prison. He knows that these virtues that he's outlined are not easy to achieve, nor have we ever been promised an easy life. In fact, no mere human could do these things as perfectly as God has called us to do. This is why God has called us to partake in his divine nature, so that we may be able to approach these moral qualities that God has created us to display. Now, if you saw in verse 4 that we get to partake in his divine nature and are let down that that means that we get to live out a bunch of morals, you're underestimating the gravity of what we've been called to do. The fullness of God's nature is something that we cannot even begin to grasp. God has revealed himself through scripture, yes, but all we can reference is temporal and limited. Everything we see and touch will end one day. But God is eternal. Even this most basic of facts is impossible for us to really comprehend. Likewise, what we know of faith, virtue, and love are all limited as a human's version of that quality. We might have a puddle or a pond of love Some of us might even have a lake, and we might think, wow, that's a lot of love. That person is really loving. And so we think to ourselves, if that person is that loving, God must have like an ocean of love. He must have so much love that I can't see one end of it from the other. And I really can't even sort of comprehend how much that really is. I don't want to take anyone's favorite worship song metaphor away from them. But we have to acknowledge that that scope is still too narrow. God's love fills the universe. His faith, virtue, justice, grace, and everything he is is beyond even a universal scale. It existed before the universe began and exists outside of it. It's beyond what we have the capacity to reason. When we imagine his love filling the world, we need to remember that the extent of it is beyond even that, is beyond anything we can think of. That, that's the scope of God's divine nature. That's why Peter, Peter doesn't say that God has given us his divine nature. How could we possibly have it? But we can partake in it. We can bask in the slimmest drop and know no bounds. The divine nature that God has called us to, is such a vast amount of knowledge and self-control and godliness that true recognition of what that might mean, we can't help but eagerly partake. If anything, we may feel overwhelmed at the transformation that God is promising. If all Christians were to truly partake in God's divine nature, in his moral perfection, 
how beautiful the world might be. What concern we would have for each other. We would stand so virtuously that no scandal could possibly hold water. Our faith unshakable, our resolve unmovable. We would have so much love for other people that they would ask, who are you to treat everyone so? Such a world might sound impossible. It might even sound more ridiculous than the story I began with today. So how could we possibly do all that? Most of us are too tired to actually have a real conversation on Sunday morning. This, though, is part of what Jesus' gift gives us. Not only did he give himself for our sins, but he also sent the Holy Spirit to live within us. That when we accept the gift of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes alive in us and helps guide us toward that divine nature that God has promised we can partake in. With the Holy Spirit, we can pursue these qualities more fervently and make real progress toward them. The Holy Spirit guides us in wisdom and helps encourage these gifts in us and provides a way that we can talk to God so that we can better understand the true meaning of these attributes. With God, we are able to walk in these qualities and live them out, confirming our calling and election in doing so. When we are in good standing with God, these qualities will ensure that we are on the right path. God has a purpose for us. As long as we practice these virtues, we won't fall. We will succeed in the purposes that God has sent out for us and we'll finish our lives holding fast to his promises, knowing we will see him in the end. If all of this is true, how are we still so nearsighted as to walk in sin and struggle with it so much day by day? This might be a huge burden to some of us. The weight of our sin we might carry around like a huge stone, the depression of it making it difficult to continue to strive for God's will. Here again, we remember God even promises we will fall short. As tough as that might be to accept, take comfort at least in knowing he already sees what tomorrow will bring. He already knows all the sins you've ever committed and all the sins you will commit. He already knew that before inviting you to his family. In avoiding sin, something that might also help is a change in mindset. With all of our thoughts on this world, we often focus on either the momentary pleasures that we're missing out on because they're sinful, or we even focus on avoiding sin, putting all of our effort in running from sin. Along with this, we underestimate the kind of life that we might be living if we were to truly manifest these qualities, if we were to truly follow God's plan that he has for us. Our focus shouldn't be on running away from sin, worrying about the devil that might be behind us, but our focus has to be on the qualities God is calling us to. In doing so, we naturally avoid sin. We certainly shouldn't be looking at jealousy at the sinner who first meets God on their deathbed, that they're able to get away with so much in life. This man who has not been able to truly partake in the divine nature, the character that God has designed us to operate in, we should look at them sorrowfully, 
that they spent their lives without knowing the grace of God, without knowing the greater purpose that God might have had for them had they only known him sooner. We can't spend our whole lives avoiding sin. By focusing on it so intently, we drive ourselves to it. That same tendency is there when driving and golfing and in basically everything we do. Our mindset and focus determines uh, where we drift. If we think about it desperately and we wish we... If, and, and we wish that we could deceive for gain or take lustful looks as long as we don't do anything about it. We drive ourselves into sin. We allow temptation to take over our minds, and with our minds taken, it's only a short time before our bodies follow. We take off our glasses, tell ourselves that the only thing that matters is five inches from our nose, and disregard the rest of the world. We need to keep God in perspective, eternity in perspective. We need to keep his greater purpose for us and his activity in our lives in perspective. Another way we can do this is by keeping a journal of, of prayer, words that, is God, that God has spoken to us, and things he has done in our lives. With this, we can better remind ourselves of what God has done for us. And that way, when he feels distant, when sin is overwhelming our focus, we can remind ourselves of what he has done. And in this way, we can be encouraged to live in that divine nature. We need to look at each of these qualities, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, and see them for what they really are. A way to grow closer to God a way to experience him more fully. We shouldn't be jealous of those who are able to go through life without manifesting these, but should be thrilled that we have the opportunity to do so, to live these qualities and experience them ourselves, to live in the way that God has designed for us, that even though all have been created in the image of God, we have the opportunity to act in his image as well. God is our creator. He designed us for a purpose. And I can't imagine that he would design, ourselves, design us for a purpose and then give us the wrong instructions on how to reach it. He has told us how we can live better, how we can experience his divine nature more fully, how we can be effective and fruitful. These deserve our focus, these qualities. So much more than a sin that might satisfy us for an evening, well, these will allow us to live our lives to the fullest, to live our lives in such a way that the creator of the universe intended for us. God knows the extent of the galaxy and the smallest particle we've discovered. He set every atom spinning in motion, as well as the arms of the galaxy. He is at the root of civilizations and intelligence. He causes music and beauty. This divine being designs sunsets from the clouds, paints flowers out of petals, and he has a plan for you. He has orchestrated the world to this moment that you and your exact personality and characteristics along with him would do exactly what you need to to 
continue his plan. If all the earth declares the glory of God, shouldn't our actions do the same? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness in walking with us. As our focus lies on sin and those things around us, you are ever-present and constant in our lives. You who want for nothing have still called it good that we would be your children. We pray that you help our focus, that our focus would be to run towards you and who you have called us to be rather than running away from sin. We pray to be able to see you at work in our lives and that you might make these qualities bound in us. That we as your people would be marked with these qualities and that those that see us would know us to be different for the lives that we lead in you. That we would be able to partake in your divine nature and that it would overflow. That we would not be able to hide our love and affection for you and that through us the world might come to know who you are and the wonder that a life with you really is. Amen.